welcome everyone to season five, episode two of the Aries podcast. I'm Helene Vijamisar, joined by Rohan Anand and Vinay Vaskara. Happy New Year, everyone. Guys. <laughs> Happy New Year. Uh, it's my birthday. Actually, tomorrow I turn oh. 20. Uh, not, I'm definitely in my me? 30s. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's, uh, been like negative 10 degrees in Chicago for the last couple of days. So right. it's, been, it's been exciting. Well, happy like cold party environment. Yeah. Happy birthday. <laughs> Watching these big little lies with my dog and <laughs> eating Havaji Indian food just to, you know, comfort my heart. How are both of you doing? Uh, good, good. It's 25 degrees in Dallas, which I think is even more out of character than negative tennis for for chicago but uh Everyone yeah but i get in texas allegedly uh, uh 25 degrees really yeah it, it was it's it actually snowed overnight last night and um when you look out my window you can see snow on the roofs of some of the other buildings so <laughs> well are we ready to talk about the dumpster fire that is 2024 aviation so far <laughs> well i mean this year has begun with a bang or a blowout. I, I, I don't. I don't know if either of those are the words that you'd like to. Yeah, you'd like to have out there quoted with your with yeah. your name attached to them. But yeah, yeah, it's not a bang. Yeah, not not an aviation. But certainly a blowout. I mean, we had the Japan Airlines uh, flight uh, five sixteen collision at Tokyo Haneda. Then we had uh, the Alaska Airlines flight twelve eighty two plug blowout that was insane and we had some interesting news uh coming out of delta they then ordered 20 more airbus aircraft uh and well today is the 15th anniversary of of the miracle on the hudson so i don't know if we want to discuss some of that but for sure the first three uh uh news items i think we can we can comment on well, and DFW Airport turned 50, which is a big deal for me as it's my hometown airport. So, yes. One of the people on this podcast lives in DFW and it's not you, but okay, sure. Yeah, your hometown airport. <laughs> Rude. Well, you know, at least we have someone there and we got some nice photos for our uh, articles. Well, thank you, Vinay, for those. Yeah, I, I actually flew into DFW on its 50th anniversary, albeit I flew into Terminal E, which is not one of the, you know, main... Um, or core terminals at, at DFW. It's for all the cats and dogs, you know, American Delta, sorry, uh, United Delta Spirit, um, American Eagle. So um, didn't didn't see any festivities um, in the in the terminal building, but uh, it was cool. It was cool to land at DFW Airport on its 50th anniversary. Do they still have the customs and immigration facilities at Terminal E? Because uh, I know that back in the day when Delta operated a hub there, they had. Uh, facility for the Frankfurt flight and some of the Mexico flights and yeah, I don't maybe not. Think so I think I think it's just a B now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once upon a time, there was even one at Terminal A back in the day. Now, not so much. Yeah, I I, th- I think it's just Terminal B um, with A, B, C, and E all being domestic only. Well, I'm glad that they at least have that satellite back up and running. For many years, it was closed, and that made me really sad. 
but it was also kind of neat because while it was closed, like you would still kind of go back there and like hang out and you could see all these vestigial elements of like the Delta hub that was shuttered in 2005. It was like kind of eerie and cryptic in a way because like everything was abandoned and you could see like the old architecture of a Starbucks and a Delta Sky Club that used to be around, but no longer. Yeah, well, that's all that. Well, so so in 2023, I actually traveled through a couple of airports that have that vibe, like um, uh, Cincinnati definitely has that vibe to it, um, in part because there's just like the infrastructure of Cincinnati is so overbuilt relative to what the current operation looks like. But then the one that was even more so of that was uh, was Pittsburgh, because Cincinnati, at least they've closed off some of the unused concourses and gates. They kind of just like closed them down willy nilly. But in Pittsburgh, the whole sort of 92 gate, like, you know, four yeah. fingered piers are all still in operation. It won all right? these awards for being such a nice terminal back in the day. And it sucks that like, you know, another one is Memphis before they remodeled it. But those weird. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think Pitt is undergoing a, a kind of remodeling that will, um, I believe, sort of rationalize um, reusing some of the existing architecture um, and then kind of bringing the land side terminal closer in. So so there there is some modernization going on at Pittsburgh. But um, yeah, the, the ghost of of sort of like airline hubs past is a very interesting um, you know thing that you experience. I, last year, I did a lot of traveling through the Midwest. So I went through St. Louis. I went through Cincinnati, Cleveland. Um, so these are all sort of ex-airline hubs that um, are... Just, um, you know, go ghost to the past, so to speak. Mm. What should we start with? Should we start with Japan Airlines and go in chronological order? I think we kind of have to, right? We, we, yeah. we'll, we'll end on some good news with the Delta Airlines A350-1000 yeah. order. But yeah. yeah. Well, first, okay. I'll have to say that when I saw the news article, uh, I think, well, first of all, it was like New Year's, the day of New Year's, but in the U.S. it was like early in the morning on the first itself or something like that. Yeah, January is. I, yeah, and I initially was like, "What was this? One of the one thousands? Also, like I'm flying through Tokyo Haneda for the first time in a couple of weeks on Japan Airlines, albeit not on an A three fifty. I think triple seven three hundred and a seven eight seven dash nine or something like that." Um, I'm familiar with Haneda's runway layouts and I'm you know, familiar with some of the terminal structure. And it's just devastating that this happened to also be at a time when that Dash 8 or whatever um, mm-hmm. other plane was supposed to be providing you know, humanitarian support. I guess my, my outstanding question is, and maybe both of you know the answer to this, is we talk a lot about here in the United States, all these near misses that have happened and like these ATC backlogs and and overworked individuals and communication issues. And we know that it's a problem here. And people have anticipated that something like this were, it was, you know, knocking on everyone's door for a long time coming. That said, this is Japan. Japan's different. And Japan has a different set of infrastructure and is known for being one that is actually like, you know, on the better slash more prepared scale to deal with these kind of emergencies. And we've been hearing a lot of reports on, you know, what really happened on the plane uh, after, you know, from that video footage, we can see that it, it, it caught fire. Uh, and uh, the minutes that elapsed and, you know, whether people take personal property with them, whether they follow the crew members instructions, whether the, you know, passengers themselves, um, you know, exit the plane on their own, 
And uh, there's been a, a comparison to Saudi Arabian Airlines, uh, a fire that happened on an L-1011 back in 1980, where they just simply waited too long and then everyone died because it just burned down. Um, so a lot of thoughts here, just in terms of like the sequence of events, rather than talking about like the actual specifics on what happened, I, I'm, I'm more interested to know what y'all th- thought of, of these different things that have come through and are we still learning more along the way you know we talked about u.s airways 1549 15 years later right and these aviation stories have have shelf life in terms of like how they prepare us to you know respond in future adjacent scenarios you know that might happen yeah i mean i i think there's a series of themes that kind of all come together Right. Um, so first and foremost, you're, you're right to point out that American and Japanese culture is very different. But I do think that globally you have seen what I would describe as a stepwise change that happened kind of right during that sort of like early to mid covid period. Um, and I'm, I'm really thinking of like 2020 and maybe like the first half of 2021, depending on where in the world you were. And, and Asia and Japan was one of the sort of later parts of the world in terms of resuming its normal sort of air service pattern and engagement with the world. But I think across a bunch of different industries, you saw a pattern where in that in that early part of COVID, when we were all kind of reacting to the sudden shift in the world, I think you definitely saw a moment where a lot of entrenched knowledge um, and experience in a variety of industries, and this will be a theme we'll come back to when we get to Boeing and all of its issues at 737 MAX 9, because I think it played a role there as well. But there was a lot of entrenched knowledge um, in those industries that basically evaporated, right? It's because people were furloughed. It's because and ended up moving on to another industry. It's because people took voluntary early retirements or buyouts, again, depending on um, whether they were working for the government or for a private sector. Um, And what we've seen in kind of the post-COVID recovery, quote unquote, is a struggle to bring is a struggle to get back to those original staffing levels, even though demand has caught up really quickly. And I think we've seen a struggle where even if you are able to restaff those positions, you've traded off, say, an air traffic controller with 18 years of experience for an air traffic controller uh, with, you know, f- uh, like five months of experience. Right. And that's been a trade that's happened consistently throughout where, you know, you know, government agencies have even been able to get to staffing in the first place. Um, and so I think that part of what was happening here is obviously, you know, in aviation, we're really, really good at not making the same mistake twice. Um, but sometimes we're really bad at anticipating the like the next accident or the next failure in advance. Um, and, and I think part of that is um, what you see here where right? you brought up, you know, the, the case of previous accidents where, you know, airlines have struggled to evacuate passengers off the plane. Thankfully, in this case, the Japan Airlines crew very professionally was able to kind of um, get all 367 passengers and, and 12 crew members off of the plane. So that was a good thing, right? That, that was a good good outcome here. Um, but in this case, I, th- I think what you're seeing is the intersection of too many, too, too much sort of return demand without enough enough capacity and more importantly, without enough experienced capacity to, to, to kind of um, uh, to, to kind of deal with the situation. And, and so, you know, I think we're still sort of monitoring the investigation. I think details will emerge over the next months, potentially even years, right? But the initial sort of of, of line is like, 
hey, you know, um, air traffic controllers, according at least according to the to the um, cockpit recorder, told the Coast Guard plane to stop short of the runway, but um, it ended up getting onto the runway, and because they were preoccupied, again, according to their self-sort of reports, with other parts of the airfield, they weren't paying attention to what was happening with the Coast Guard Dash 8 and the A350 that was coming in into land, right? Um, is a more experienced um, ATC sort of uh, air traffic controller going to to have that instinct to say, hey, let me just quickly glance at what's happening back over here to, you know, just double check and make sure that everything looks reasonable, right? Maybe, maybe not, but um, I, I, I don't think it's an accident that you're seeing this continuous rise in both near misses and now, in this case, an unfortunately deadly incident. Yeah. According to the transcript, ATC uh, did their job. There's an issue of the type of communications where the ATC used term number one to communicate the departure order. And so the, the Air Force is now changing that. Um, I don't know uh, to what effect, you know, will that change things. But the official cause is that the Coast Guard aircraft had entered the runway without clearance. So is that it, it, maybe because it's a government aircraft? Um uh, but to me, more than that, I mean, they could do some co- cosmetic changes. I know the stoplights didn't work. They were functional. But uh, to me, both accidents, well, the Japan Airlines collision with the Dash 8, there wasn't a massive loss of life. That's something positive. And that's because we have benefited from the lessons uh, that we have learned from the past. Uh, what's interesting to me is that the Haneda event was the first accident involving Japan Airlines uh, in almost 40 years. What's interesting from, I guess, an engineering point of view is it's the first time that uh, an A350 burned fully. Yeah, Yeah, the the first whole loss of an A350. The material the plane is made of, right? That's a talking plane. Yeah, composite materials. So that would be like a treasure trove for for investigators and and engineers uh, to see, you know, how the material... It's first time, so... It's what Vinay is saying. We're very good at learning from past mistakes that we can't foresee. Yeah. And, and I mean, a, a, every accident that happens, for the most part, obviously, like, you know, in certain parts of the world where training or standards or maintenance are, are not as invested in, maybe you, you see a repeat of, of, of old sort of experiences. But for the most part, um, you know, we've done a pretty good job of, of patching like what caused the last accident and not having it happen again. Right. Right. Um, I, I think back to air Florida flight 90, right. We really haven't seen a major de-icing uh, caused crash in the West since then. Right. Run runway collisions maybe is, is like the sort of like half exception in that, like as airports have gotten more congested, um, there is a certain degree of just like, you know, even if we have say like, uh, reduce the probability of, uh, you know, runway collisions by, let's say, 80%. There are so many more flights than there were when Lockerbie happened, right? Or not Lockerbie, um, uh, uh, what am I thinking of? Um, the Spain, um, the the Pan Am KLM. Oh, yeah, was Tenerife, that? Tenerife. Tenerife, Tenerife, yeah. Tenerife. yeah. Since when Tenerife happened, that even though maybe we've gotten better at managing runway sort of overlap, there's so many more flights. So in practice, you you would expect to see that this, this type of incident every once in a while. Well, and just to be fair, right, quickly, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 
there was an earthquake that just happened. The Coast Guards were, you know, I'm, I'm sure thinking, this is just me, my opinion, just thinking about their mission to get supplies to wherever. I don't know if that had anything to do with that, but commercial aircraft colliding with commercial aircraft, we we don't see those. Close call. Yeah, but I mean, even those. if you look over the last few years, right, like in 2022, you had a, a LATCOM E320 um, uh, sort of uh, collide with a fire engine on the runway, yeah. right? Um, you've had, um, you know, you, you've had other runway collisions, you know, just from an eyeball perspective happens once every, um, you know, five to 10 years or so, but, but r- runway collisions do happen yeah. uh, every once in a while. It, it just, it just is, is sort of what it is, you know? And, you know, think we've had the near, you know, incident in SFO with the Air Canada A320 a few years ago that may have potentially landed on like four fully loaded wide body aircraft departing SFO for like Sydney, Singapore, SFO, uh, Manila and like Cancun or something like that. That could have been awful. And when we zoom out and talk about aviation disasters, just kind of as broadly as we have been. Back in the day, you know, a lot of these were caused by uh, terrorist incidents and uh, right. human factors that didn't involve the personnel operating the aircraft. Then there was a period, of course, where foreign object degrees or FOD became kind of a thing with the Air France uh, Concorde crash that took place from the piece of metal that had fallen from the Continental Airlines DC-10 that had just taken off from uh Charles de Gaulle. Then there's weight turbulence, right? That was a huge thing with the American Airlines. I think it was flight 587 that uh, crashed into the part of Queens, New York. Um, You know, that was basically going against a 747 that had just taken off, right? And so when also we think about airline disasters too, there's a whole contingency that's involved on the airline side itself, not just from having to work with the public and a PR perspective, but actually to work with the victims. And when I was at Southwest Airlines, I was part of the care team. And that's a trained team that is on standby or on call at any given point um, to be able to assist with uh, having to help out with anything that could happen, whether, you know, and, and oftentimes you have to learn the script. And if you're an airline employee, you might know this. You have to learn the script on how to support people who might be impacted by that. And so in the sense that you set up a virtual call center, a triage center to be able to help, you know, accommodate travel arrangements for those that might have been impacted. And when flight 1380 happened, which was the shrapnel that had flown into the window, uh, I was still an employee there. And um, unfortunately, the airline lost a passenger that day. However, we were mobilized uh, until we had confirmation that the manifest list and everything I checked out, and the plane was safely on the ground. So not sure if we wanted to talk any more about the Japan Airlines one, but this could be a segue into the Alaska Airlines one, right? Because I think that that one was also just kind of like completely, no pun intended, blew everyone's <laughs> like top off in terms of like yeah. a fully loaded plane like that one just happened to not have any passenger seating in the exit seat on the window side. Well, it, it, it's not the exit seat, right? It's it's the oh, sorry, no, the door, the Max Nine, yeah, um, Max Nine, yeah, uh, which, which is you know, seven three seven NG design as well. Yeah, 
So yeah. um, before we, before we move on to the the seventh understanding of Max Fine, maybe, maybe the last thing I would throw out is just some perspective, right? Um, any any sort of air commercial aviation incident um, tends to get a disproportionate volume and share of, of headlines. Um, it, it speaks to a very primal fear that a lot of people have. Um, but I think it's it's worth just noting, right, that uh, we're still in a very extraordinarily safe period for aviation. Right. Um, in 2023, I think we had 150 ish deaths. We, you know, we, we've, we've had fewer than 200 deaths from commercial aviation crashes in each of the last two years. Mm-hmm. And if you compare, you know, uh, 2023, for example, to 1989, 90 percent fewer fatalities. You know, you compare it to 1985. Obviously, that was a bit of a, a, a peak year in terms of, of commercial aviation fatalities. But, you know. Uh, we are close, you know, there's basically 30 times fewer deaths, right? 3,000 3, people died from, from you know, air crashes in, in that same, in, in, in 1985, right? You go back to the 70s, the 60s, it was even less safe. So it is very, we are very much um, in a period where, um, you know, things are looking wobblier, certainly than they did before relative to the pre-pandemic trend. But we're also still in an incredibly safe era for commercial aviation. I think it's worth just remembering that. Yeah. And as we kind of dissect what has happened in both of these um, yeah. incidents. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as we get into the Alaska Airlines, uh, I recall the NTSB uh, chair, Jennifer Homedy, just drilling that, that truth out there. Just it is the safest way of transportation. Um, yeah. And I, I know that I can be snarky sometimes uh, and I still want to underline in all seriousness that I have utmost respect for the personnel in the cabin, for the personnel, uh, part of the flight crews, all those that are involved in these steps, you know, engineers, others that help make aviation transportation be as safe as it is. And that includes, you know, landing in stormy weather or having to contend with what's happening with the the icy mess we have to deal with on runways. So, moving on to the Alaska Airlines uh, topic. First of all, I was supposed to fly on a Max for the first time on Southwest from Midway to LaGuardia in December. That trip got canceled, so I'm still Maxless, uh, so to speak, and. Uh, <laughs> I don't have one opinion or the other. It's just this Max saga has gone on for so long now. The sagas with Boeing have become routine. The sagas even with Airbus have become kind of routine. So the Max, when it was grounded, you know, there was all sorts of sadness around those deaths from the Lion Air crash and from the Ethiopian crash. With this situation... The MAX has now been back in service for over a year, and it, the the normalization of the aircraft is is now, again, I think it's not the death trap or flying coffin that people describe it as. That being said, in this case, we are still dealing with an audit situation that came to find deficiencies in the fleet, and it's only a small number of max nines that have been delivered to a small number of airlines so my question is i guess i'm not in tech ops i don't know structure engineering however i've heard from many different people all over about how 
you find cracks and wings, you find cracks in airframes, you find all of these things. And so what I just said about aviation safety, what happens when we kind of flip the coin over and we see this underbelly, how are we supposed to react? So I, I think there's a localized point that I'll make that sort of flashes back to this notion of um, a loss of entrenched know-how, right? And that was something that happened during the pandemic when it came to um, airlines, certainly. And it's something that happened when it came to ATC. But it's also something that has happened when it cu- when it came to um, aircraft manufacturers and aircraft suppliers, right? There's a, a whole sort of Spirit Aerosystems Boeing nexus that's still being untangled as to what exactly went wrong with this specific plane that had the issue. But the same sort of lack of entrenched knowledge that has happened at the level of air traffic controllers, pilots, you know, take your pick, has also happened at the level, um, less so I would even say with people, who, the people who designed the aircraft, because, um, you know, I think that that's, that's a separate Boeing problem, which we'll, we'll dig into in a second. But even at the level of the people that actually assemble and manufacture the aircraft, you talk to anyone who works at an, you know, at a, at a, at a supplier company like a Honeywell or um, Spirit Aerosystems or, or take your pick, right? There's, there's hundreds and hundreds of these sort of aircraft component suppliers, you know, they've lo- they lost a lot of really high quality, experienced workers who had a lot of entrenched knowledge, who you know took a lot of pride in the work that they did and, and uh, produced a high quality output. And there just hasn't been the pipeline to replace those folks, um, both in the literal sense that they are struggling to fill jobs and fill positions and um, clear sort of inventory and backlogs, but also in the sense that um, it takes time, right? When you replace someone who's got 25 years of experience um, working on the assembly line with someone who's got, you know, a year or two coming out of an apprenticeship, that's just going to change um, the reliability of that process. Now, a company that's thinking more proactively about this is going to change its approach to quality and to monitoring and to um, oversight in order to compensate for that. Um, But that gets to, I think, what I think is the second and maybe more sort of uh, the deeper issue, which is that the sort of culture of engineering and manufacturing excellence at Boeing um, has been on the decline for a while. And to your point, it's it's on the decline at Airbus too, right? I think both of these firms have become, um, they're, they're less so today run by engineers who understand finance and more so run by financiers who maybe do or maybe don't understand the engineering side of the house. Um, and it's worth talking about culture here because it's it's a really, really tricky, ephemeral, and honestly, mostly intangible thing that's really, really hard to get right in, in terms of the balance, right? Um, and so, um, you know, and the way we describe it, right, is it's easy if you're, you know, in the C-suite or even if you're like a regional vice president or, uh, you know, a, a, a mid-level sales manager, it's easy for you to come to, to work and you know, believe with every bone in your body, hey, what I'm doing here is imp- important and impactful. You've got sort of stock options, you're well compensated for your 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 work, et cetera. How do you get the hourly worker at the subcontracted supplier who works for 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 you know to assemble component parts for your Boeing jet to care just as much? That that speaks to that more ephemeral, intangible layer of culture. And I think I think it's it's worth calling out that um you know, stuff like trying to break the back of the um, sort of uh, 
you know, machinist union in Seattle, right? This is the thing that Boeing did when they opened the South Carolina plant for the Boeing 787, for example, right? And you can even see the financial logic for that decision, right? Like the financial logic is, hey, Seattle's a really, really expensive um, place for us to operate. It's only getting more expensive because of the tech boom. Um, we need some more balance here. We need some more risk. And, and it's, it, this is not to say that, you know, um, sort of the IAM or sort of um, employee unions have always been perfect in their approach to what they want and, and what they ask for from Boeing. But on some sort of ephemeral level, that also does send a signal about the culture of what matters and what matters most within Boeing. And, you know, you fast forward five, six, seven, ten. I'm, I'm not making a new point here, right? Plenty of people have made this point before. Um, but I just I just think it's interesting to kind of observe that. Um, and, and maybe the last thing I'll do to lighten the mood a little bit before we we dig more into what this means for, for Boeing, for Alaska, for United, for for the 737 MAX um, is I actually want to make an, an analogy to another product um, that has the word MAX in its title. So um, have either of you guys ever had Pepsi MAX, which is like Pepsi's version of Coke Zero? I think I may have tried it once. OK, yeah. yeah. So so Coke. Coke and Coke Zero is, is really interesting, right? Like, like it's basically meant to be a sort of zero sugar version of Coke, um, like like Diet Coke, but that tastes closer to the original Coke formula. And if you've ever had Coke and Coke Zero, you know that it basically tastes the same, right? I, I don't think I've ever, at this point, if there's both Coke and Coke Zero on the menu, I'll choose Coke Zero every time because I'm really not sacrificing that much, right? It's, it's a it's a well-done version of a um, warmed-over redesign, right? Okay, Pepsi and Pepsi Max. Pepsi already is worse than Coke, but Pepsi Max has a much bigger taste differential relative to mainline Pepsi. And I think that there's something sort of darkly analogous hmm. with what Airbus has done with the E320neo and with what Boeing has done with the 737 Max. They, they kind of did the same operation. One of them just executed it better. Um, and that was that's for a lot of like structural reasons, but it's also, um, I think, a, a really apt analogy. I'm curious to hear, hear if you guys agree. We're thrilled to highlight the February 2024 issue of Airways Magazine. In this issue, we uncover the hidden gem of the Netherlands with Simone Schellini's article, Skip Hole's Little Brother. Discover the advantages of Rotterdam's high airport and why it's worth considering for your next trip. Next, join Anush Tambuwala as he takes us on a luxurious transatlantic journey aboard Austrian Airlines Boeing 767-300 business class. Adrian Nowakowski brings us the latest on Saudi Arabian aviation with his report on the big changes happening in the country. We learn about Saudi's business model and the exciting launch of Riyadh Air, signaling a new era in Saudi aviation. We also dive into the rising star of African aviation with Matteo Lenani's interview with Yvonne Makolo, CEO of Ronda Air. Discover the ambitions and future plans of this dynamic airline as it shines brighter on the African continent. Ever wonder what happens at airports during the night? Marty Basaria takes us on a fascinating behind-the-scenes tour of night operations at Boston Logan International Airport. And finally, Maurice Wickstead concludes his captivating two-part series on the history of Swiss Air. Join us in remembering this iconic airline and its lasting impact on the industry, even two decades after its demise. So don't miss out on these incredible stories in the February 2024 issue of Airways Magazine. Grab your copy today at any Barnes & Nobles, 
You can also get the latest issues and all back issues and embark on a journey through the fascinating world of commercial aviation at airwaysmag.com slash shop. Well, yes, I've done studies on the Cola Wars my, uh, you know, my, during my career, right? And that's a whole other thread about just those two companies and their brands and their like conglomerates and how they've essentially like probably made diabetes, you know, even more prevalent everywhere. That's another conversation. With this Boeing and Airbus, right, we have now come down to a really two mega producers and everything is inherently political. Boeing and all of its ties with the U.S. and beyond, Airbus and all of its ties with European Union nations and beyond. And then the subdivisions like, you know, bringing in Bombardier's C-Series aircraft and then, of course, that whole nonsense, bringing in um, the, uh, you know, not nonsense, that's the wrong, wrong word I'm looking for, it's just the, the history of the politics, right? My, my question is, is... I remember growing up flying McDonnell Douglas aircraft when I was younger. And then I remember one day looking at the American Airlines in-flight magazine and all of a sudden, the, you know, always would go to the fleet's page. I must have not even been 10 years old. And it suddenly said Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, Boeing Super 80 or something like that. But it basically, when it became clear that Boeing now had taken over McDonnell Douglas aircraft, people are speculating that there was a McDonnell Douglas culture that came into Boeing when those two companies came together. And a lot of people are also comparing about how the DC-10, you know, even though it was a very well-known revolutionary aircraft, and it, honestly, like, aviation geeks love it with nostalgia, it was kind of similar to the Max in terms of the, the bad press that it got. If you want to torture the analogy a little bit further, right, the DC-10 is a really hilarious and instructive case because... Um, you talk to sort of um, airline folks from this period, you talk to pilots from this period, right? They'll all say that the L-1011 was the better of the two trijet sort of wide bodies, right? It was it was better put together. Um, it was more versatile. It was more capable. But the, the DC-10 sold better. Um, and if you have a dollars and cents first mentality, and again, we're, we're, we're sort of speculating here, right? So, you know, um, you know, take everything we say with a grain of salt, but... If you have that dollars and cents mentality, then what matters with the DC-10 is not that it had all these safety challenges and um, and struggles and there were some mistakes made there. What matters is that, is that it outsold the L-1011. And so, you know, you carry that forward, right? The MAX has had a series of issues. Um, it was arguably the wrong thing for Boeing to launch precisely because it came into the market with a disadvantage relative to the A320neo family. Like, you can criticize the MAX on a sort of uh, manufacturing and execution basis. You can also criticize the Max on a market positioning basis in that, yeah, it was maybe slightly better for Boeing's um, short-run financial metrics because it obviated the need to spend a lot of money developing a new clean sheet airplane. But the flip side is it permanently locked in a 60-40 disadvantage relative to Airbus in the single aisle market. And, and truthfully, it only has that 40% share because the A320 family, and specifically the A321neo, has sold so well that if you want a next-generation narrow-body aircraft, you kind of have to buy the Max, right? Um, so 
uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like the 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 underlying sort of cultural shift, the the shift to dollars and cents that you're calling out, um, absolutely, I think exists. And um, you know, I'd be curious to see how much of that was truly a um, was truly a sort of post McDonnell Douglas merger, um, you know, shift. But you know, the other thing I would say is that if you look at the history of the triple seven, right? Um, there's a really good book about um, the development and the execution of the triple seven. Um, the, the original triple seven, right? Um, not the triple seven X, which has gone through its own sort of uh, set and share of certification now. But the original triple seven, you look, you look at how that program's rollout and man and and sort of um, uh, uh, execution was handled, and you compare that to the two programs that Boeing has really launched since, which are the the seven eight seven uh, or the three rather, the seven eight seven, the seven three seven Max, and the triple seven X. And even though the 777X and the 737 MAX are ostensibly, they should be easier, right? Because you're not rebuilding the whole thing from scratch. You're just, um, you know, you're you're just uh, uh, re-engining and making sort of tweaks and adjustments to the airframe and to the fuselage and to the rest of the, the design. Yet somehow these these new programs have seen all kinds of issues. And and yeah, the, you know, in, in the same way that you have for like economic statistics or social statistics, right? The what happened in in 1971, you know, in the history of Boeing, you, you kind of need to have a, like, what happened? And when was the McDonnell Douglas Boeing murder? Exactly. What, what year was it? Late 1990s. Yeah, it was, it looks like 1997. So, yeah, yep. what ha- what happened in 1997? You, you probably put put a chart there and look at what has happened to Boeing since 1997 in, in a very similar way. Well, and that was the year that Boeing started going ham on the 777 and also developing the 787 program. Now well, we the triple seven was was already launched, right? Because it was it was already launched, launched in nineteen ninety five. But right? they're so. also working on the extended range version for like the three hundred and the two hundred LR and so forth. We're talking about two companies that are just milking their biggest sellers, right? And, and you know the seven thirty seven was Boeing's biggest seller for a long time, and so was the A three twenty. So I don't know if this is like a third analogy, but you know, if, you, if the phones are iPhones are selling, just just keep. You know, why make a new one? I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but it's certainly money. Before, and, but, but but to me, the old Max, like the Alaska Airlines incident accident, the, the NTSB is calling it an accident. FAA is calling it an incident. Um, is that so much the Max? I know we were focusing on the Max. Uh, but it's more of yeah a quality control issue on behalf of Boeing and and I think yeah I agree with with Vinay it's people have left you know t- talent has has left Boeing and yeah. so that's the issue maybe some heads will roll but at the end of the day is just the people you know maintenance because I know the door plug can be taken out for maintenance so. It is it is a quality issue, in my opinion. Yeah, more than just a problem with the Max and the whole strategy. Yeah, it, it's an underlying problem with Boeing. And and you know, again, you you look at sort of May twenty twenty, Boeing cut twelve thousand jobs, and you know, it, it's not a straight line, right? You can't definitively say that if it had you know those experienced workers, may, maybe this doesn't happen. But it's hard to, to it's hard to not figure that there was a lower likelihood that this kind of quality issue happens when you have sort of experience in the room. So 
Um, I, at any rate, I, I think it's it's interesting to think about when this will resolve, because my guess is that we're in for a potentially multiple month wait for the 737 MAX 9 to get signed back off on, right? I think that's the FAA's political incentive, especially in, in an election year. I think we are in a um, in for a longer and much more harrowing certification process for the 737 MAX 10 and the 737 yeah. MAX 7. More stringent um, testing for sure. Exactly. Um, you know, China was set to resume deliveries of the 737 MAX after, um, you know, uh, several years of, of paused deliveries. Now that's potentially up in the air and they're going to be taking a closer look at the quality. And, and, the, and, and the irony, of course, is that 737 MAX 8 hasn't really had any of these issues. It, of course, had plenty of issues with the MCAS system back in the day. Um, but it kind of is getting caught in the fray, even though that's where the majority of the orders sit. Um, I, I, I think it's also, again, maybe worth just sort of touching on there is sort of some luck in, involved in this, right? In the sense that, to, to Rohan's point, um, because this happened on a carrier that doesn't have the extra seating capacity that would necessitate using that extra door, right? Because precisely because it was you know plugged very poorly, apparently it, it would seem. Um, you know, I suppose we 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 lucked out in a way. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a really really. Um, a really grim start to the year so far, at least on the aviation safety front, right? We we're 15 days in and we've already seen, you know, a max grounding. We've seen uh, an 8350 hull loss. Um, I can only imagine what the rest of the year has in store for us. But this is uh, not an auspicious start. As it's not. It's not. And, and just left a bad taste to think that the plug blowout had to happen for the, you know, 737-9s to then be grounded and then you find all these missing hardware and, you know, it had to happen. And then you find out that there's more under the rug. I, you know, it's just so question, had a good start. So so Delta announced that it was going to get maxes. Now that delivery timeline, I don't know off the top of my head, but what kind of maxes was it getting? Eights, nines, tens? Mm, I think eights. Um, but, you know, that aside, it just kind of shows that, you know, the max is still a popular aircraft, right? But... I'm very curious to know when the earnings results come out for Q4 slash the full year um, in these earnings for Southwest and United, if they're going to be like, for example, if Andrew Watterson at Southwest and Andrew Nacella at United will be speaking to the impact, the capacity impacts of <clears throat> grounding those planes. I know that, you know, airline route, uh, or one of the, you know, digests that I see for capacity changes, it showed some things being taken out of Houston and out of Chicago, largely to Florida markets or something like frequency reductions. I also wonder how much the A321 joining United Sleet is at least helping out somewhat in covering for the slack of the grounded planes. Um, I'm not also sure the impact on Alaska for the capacity that it will take out, although it's, you know, kind of also telling that this aircraft was literally barely a few months old in terms of its life cycle. Yeah, and I think it's like 4% of, of Boeing backlog. So it's, you don't have a lot of Dash 9s. Yeah, that are, that and, 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 the, and the Dash 9s, the Max 9s, um, for United at least, right? Um, they were operating about 200 flights a day for United out of a system-wide figure of um about uh three thousand 
So they okay. were important, but they were they were not, you know, they were they were not the the sort of be all end all. Like if I were to look at sort of the beginning of uh it's also of January, war, right? It's it's not it is yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But even if I were to you know, even if I were to look at sort of the beginning of, of the quarter, right? Um you know, it's it's like 18 flights a day at SFO, it's 15 a day at Chicago, it's 15 at LAX, it's 10 or 11 at, at Houston, about 25 at Newark and 25-ish at Denver. So those are probably the bi- the biggest impact that you that you see. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately the um, the removal of the max is going to be not super impactful for um, for United. Now, I think for Alaska, it was a bigger piece of the puzzle, particularly when it came to ASMs um, and to to flights. So, um, you know, in, ter- in terms of flights, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm using Cerium to kind of get a quick glance at this. Um, so for Alaska, it was also about 200 flights a week uh, or like like 160. Again, just kind of eyeballing it. And that's out of a total of about um, a thousand. So it was maybe like three, four percent of United's um fleet flight frequency and uh you know like five five percent of their asms for alaska it's about 30 percent of their asms and um about 15 to 20 percent of their flights because they fly them on a lot of longer range flights a lot of east coast flights um a lot of hawaii flights so um that's that's where i do think alaska is going to see a a bigger impact than than united at least according to Sirium. yeah and internationally I see that uh, Copa was uh, 23% of its flights uh, were Boeing uh, 737-9s, Air Mexico 14%, Turkish Airlines 4%, Iceland Air 29%, Lion Air 1%, Fly Dubai 1.7%. So, yeah, that's internationally. Yeah, not not super impactful for most besides Copa. And Copa and Alaska really seem like they will see the, the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be, I'll be curious to see maybe, maybe the last thing we'll throw out is everyone give a prediction for when you think the 737 max nine will be back in service. What do we think? August. We're, we're betting yeah, a year three. on this. Okay. Three, four months. Okay. So you, you've got August. We've got, let's say May 15th from, from mm-hmm. Helen. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll go, I'll go earliest. I'll go April 20th. Yay. All right. <laughs> pri- 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 prices, prices, right. Rules. That'll be a fun day in Seattle. That'll be a great day in Seattle. And they can once again be proudly all Boeing for about 12 months until they bring Hawaiian <laughs> Airlines into the, flo- into the fold. For a second, I almost blanked and thought that this aircraft that was impacted was an Airbus A321. And I think that that's because I saw a photo someone put up about like the West Coast more to love plane. When I worked at Southwest and I was at headquarters, the Alaska planes that would come in slash ex Virgin America planes that would come in from that little hublet that they had, you know, it, I w- it would literally be just a couple hundred yards from where I parked my car. So I saw it up close, you know, and then didn't last, but that was actually a great way to get to know Alaska airlines. I was once an MVP goal with them. Can you believe that? Sometimes it's changed. I'm a nobody on anybody. So on everybody, I should say you're not missing much. Is, yeah. Is I mean, like, I I, I I hate to say this because like I kind of called it and I was right. But when I stepped away from the miles and points game, like I was that blogger and that person that like did trip reports and everything, which is still fun. But like 
the effort required to try to prove to the world that you're getting a return on your frequent flyer status, even if it's not like your full-time job, it's exhausting. And also the game has changed. Like I just saw a video that that nonstop Dan or whatever used to put up about all trip report reviews. Now he's just reviewing a terrible time in the Maldives. You know what I mean? So it's like, okay, I guess like, yeah, you can travel somewhat for cheap and go to like nice places, but it could still be completely awful. So you just got to well, love the aviation part and be hey, very. Hey, hey. <laughs> hey, uh, by the way, I'm still waiting for write-ups from both of you. Yeah, we got to talk about getting um, back on the writing game, but um, the compensation model discussions have to have to be addressed. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. anyway, we should maybe uh, wrap up Alaska. Are we going to end on the positive note with Delta? Or do we still have other topics we wanted to get out of the way? No, I, th- I think we just got to finish up with um, with Delta ordering uh, 20 new Airbus A350 1000s. Um, yes, the one piece of good news to come out of an otherwise pretty horrible week for, for U.S. aviation. Um, so Delta ordered 20 new Airbus A350-1000s, um, adding to an existing fleet of 28 um, Airbus A350-900s, the, the smaller cousin. Um, Delta uh, also you know, p- p- packed on 20 purchase options. So Rohan, I'm curious, what was your sort of take? I mean, obviously this, this order had been rumored for a while, um, but I'm curious what your take it was on on Delta's decision to um, you know finally pull pull the trigger and opt for a you know triple seven three hundred ER sized um, flagship new flagship jet. Yeah, I think that there's logic to it because of the fact that the extra large the VLA right the very large aircraft. What what is the cutoff number? Three hundred, three fifty. American Airlines is now densifying its 777-300ERs. United's 777-300ERs have a really good fit for its fleet because it has a very large front cabin and premium seats, but also takes a lot in the back. Same with its 787-10s that it has. What does Delta have at this point? Its largest aircraft has now been the Airbus A350-900, which has been part of the fleet for well over five years. It was what had allowed Delta to debut a new product with regards to the premium economy and the Delta One suites. And it had retired the 747-400 by this point. And then later on through pandemic, the 777-200LR slash ER was uh, taken out of the fleet. So that fundamentally left Delta between the A350-900, which it does use on some you know long-haul um, ultra long range routes like Cape Town to Atlanta or Atlanta to Seoul. Um, but with regards to an even larger scale plane where Delta is trying to find fit into its network, that would maybe be a hub to hub kind of thing at a, a constrained airport like JFK to Amsterdam, or if they really wanted to. Uh, be able to use this uh, to fly from Atlanta to Johannesburg and Atlanta to Mumbai. Some of these longer range routes that would not have been viable on a 777-200LR uh, nor on a 747-400, but the A350-900 isn't the right aircraft for it. United is showing that it's able to to, to do that, really, to like fly a 777-300ER from San Francisco to a Manila or to 
uh, Melbourne, you know, these these are long routes. And so Delta can't rely on the Airbus A330-900, the NEO. That's going to be used to replace 767s and Airbus A330s in the fleet. So it's a natural fit and extension to Delta's fleet profile. And I also think from a product perspective, well, not only from a network perspective, doesn't make sense, and not only from an Airbus Delta wide body relationship perspective, doesn't make sense. It also is a way in which Delta can have um, maybe the chance to introduce a new product into its into its cabin configurations. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think if you read the tea leaves a little bit in what they talked about during the earnings call, right? One of the themes that they called out is that sort of premium cabin travel. And I really take that to mean both Delta One, um, but also premium economy has really been the the sweet spot for Delta um, across the past um, uh, across the past several quarters. And it's something that they've invested a lot in establishing themselves as probably the most premium U.S. airline brand. Um, and yet, if you look at premium seat capacity, um, right, uh, prior to the adoption of the um, the high J um, A350-900 configuration with 275 seats, right? That's going to have 40 Delta One suites and 40 premium economy seats. Before that, the 350-900 had 32 business class seats. The A330-200 um, and 300 each had 34. Um, and then the 767-300ER uh, and 400ER each had like 36 and 34. Compare that to United. United has 60 business uh, Polar seats in its um in its triple seven three hundred er it has fifty in its triple seven two hundred er it's got forty eight and forty four in the seven eight seven nine seven 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 eight seven eight it's got thirty four like delta in the seven six seven uh, four hundred and it has its high j um you know de- business class dense configuration for the seven six seven three hundred er right um you know delta doesn't have enough premium seats in its um you know, uh, in its planes and its wide bodies. And so I think that gives us some clues as to where they're going to deploy these A350s. And I think there's really sort of three categories of markets where this makes sense, right? Um, the first is markets where they need more premium seating, right? Um, you're going to, you can sort of assume reading the tea leaves that these are going to be configured with maybe like 50 Delta one suites, 55, so, so somewhere between 50 and 60 Delta one suites, somewhere between 40 and 50 premium economy seats. Okay. What are some markets that need that volume of premium cap, premium sort of seating. That's the first piece. Second piece is in some of those high density sort of markets where they have a lot of existing seat capacity, um, routes into sort of partner hubs like Amsterdam, like Paris, Charles de Gaulle, um, potentially something like LAX to Sydney. And what you're really looking at there is more so the A350-1000 is going to be the most cost efficient on a per passenger basis aircraft in Delta's fleet. So that's another big bucket, right? Is um, high volume passenger, you know, high volume traffic into partner hubs that can then connect on into the into the rest of the world. And then the third one, which is what you call that as well, is reestablishing some of that trans-Pacific access um, in markets where the A350-1000 has some unique, unique advantages, right? The A350-900 is a great plane to serve Asia with, um, but again, it's it's more expensive to operate on a per passenger basis, and especially to markets. Manila is a great example where you called out United using the triple seven three hundred ER. But in those types of markets, you need more density of seats in the back of the plane. India, I think, has been called out consistently as a market where this is important, um, both for um, passenger capacity and economy and economy plus, but also or Delta Main and Comfort, whatever. Take it back. Um, but also for um, 
uh, for um, the uh, the extra payload range capabilities it gives them to be able to avoid Russian airspace and still get from the east coast of the United States to um, India. But there's also other probably other markets in Asia um, where this air, airplane is going to be really impactful. Basically, any market where you need more economy class capacity, where you need more premium cabin capacity, or where you need more cargo capacity. Um, so I think that that that, that that'll, that's going to be really interesting to sort of observe and 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 watch play out. What about um, domestic like high traffic hub to hub? Like I would love to fly no like Atlanta, uh, L.A., New York, domestic, Seattle, domestic wide body operations are used to be able to move resources around hubs and do yeah. you know work into the network and in in tech ops and crew bases and what have you, but they don't make money for airlines. They're very, very not actually good for network profitability perspective because those planes are meant to pull in money from the front of the cabin and they have to charge very high prices to cover the cost of operating that aircraft. But on a domestic flight, you can't have a, you know, $139 fare in first class on a 737 and do the same thing on a 787. It just doesn't make sense on a seat. Yeah. And if you were to look at Delta's, um, you know, in the summer, right? So in the winter, this gets a little wonky because they kind of got to fly the plane somewhere and um, there's repositioning and stuff like that needs to happen. But if you look in the summer, and I'm just looking at May 2024 as sort of a guide for this, right? Um, if you look at May 2024, um, the only sort of dom the domestic wide body flights that exist on Delta are an A350-900 from LA to Atlanta um, and vice versa. Um, and that's arguably going to be repositioning is, is my guess, right? And then you've got the 767s flying from LAX to JFK, from Honolulu to Los Angeles, in, in, you know, in and out of Hawaii, premium transcons. That's really going to be your bet. And I think Delta has shown that unless it needs to reposition an aircraft, it's generally going to prefer to fly an older depreciated wide body on those routes. So it cares about having a flatbed on, you know, JFK to SFO, but it uses 757-200 for that. It cares about having a premium product on, um, on you know, LAX to JFK, but it's going to use a 767 that's on its way out for that. Um, I think the more interesting thing to also consider is that, um, you know, Delta is planning on using these, you know, these A350s through a sort of capacity cascade to replace its seven six its oldest seven six sevens, which are the three hundred ERs. It operates forty four of those. Um, then you've got the twenty one six seven six seven four hundred ERs. And while you know you could say that a seven eight seven is a great replacement, a seven eight seven nine is a great replacement for both of those. Um, it's a lot harder to get seven eight seven nine from a delivery slots perspective, especially after United ordered two hundred of them, than it is to get the A three thirty nine hundred, which Delta already has on property. So my guess is that eventually they'll order more A330-900s as a sort of top-up for um, the uh, for, for the, the the 767 replacement. Um, and at some point in the next decade, Delta is no longer going to operate any Boeing wide bodies. And if you look at the history of Delta, they operated the 747-100 from 1970 to 1977. Um, they operated, they were the launch customer for the Boeing 767, um, and they operated that in their fleet until 2006. Um, they were one of the earlier customers for the 777-200LR, the 777-200ER. You know, prior to the Northwest Airlines merger, Delta was almost an exclusively a Boeing customer. 
And we're getting to a world where Boeing is going to be non-existent in their wide body fleet. And yeah, you're going to have some maxes. But again, you know, if you just eyeball it, they've got something like 400 Airbus, Airbus narrow bodies and um, are going to end up with a lot fewer Boeing narrow bodies as you sort of move migrate into the next generation. So it's very interesting to kind of think about how that has evolved, right? You go, you go back 25 years, right, or 26 years to 1998 when the 737 Next Generation was lost, but or, or launched rather. Boeing, you know, Airbus was an, all, or sorry, Delta was an all Boeing airline. If you incorporate the sort of um, McDonnell Douglas plane as Boeing after the merger, right? I mean, we talked about that earlier, um, and uh, looks like they're going the other direction from from Alaska Airlines when it comes to their uh, their Boeing heritage. Boeing, the bastion of American manufacturing. What's going to happen? What a, what, what, a, what a champion it is. What a champion it is. All right. Well, very interesting, guys. Yeah. Kind of fun. Well, f- always fun to be on the phone with you guys. Uh, less fun given that we, what we talked about um, today on the first episode of, of 2024. But uh, but yeah, glad to be back. to contrast this with our last episode of season four, make, a.k.a. the predictions we had. <laughs> And that's why I'm really conservative. You know, Vinay is giving me crap about being so, you know, even (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, the first episode of season five was great. Uh, What do you guys think of uh, Captain Lindstrom? It was so cool. Yeah. I really just had no idea even thinking about the landing infrastructure at a place like Antarctica and like the amount of training and work that goes in. I mean, it was a very realistic portrayal of what it must be like to operate an aircraft down there. So thank you for them to, you know, come on to our podcast. We have more interviews coming, coming up another side of the industry. uh, Hopefully maybe the beginning of February, we will have the president of gate gourmet North America. So that's going to be fun. A very important side of aviation, for sure. We have Jay Shabbat, uh, too, uh, yes. I think, that is going to join us. And uh, Jay has worked at Airline Weekly, Skift, written several books. Just an absolutely knowledgeable person that um, would be, you know, a, a wonderful addition. And so, as always, um, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, leave us a review wherever you, you get the podcast. Prefer, you know, definitely Apple Podcasts, but, um, but anywhere else. Uh, tell a friend, tell a foe, tell an enemy if you don't like the sound of our voices. But uh, yeah, just tell people, tell people about the podcast so we can continue to to grow and put it out there for you all. Yep, I'll be well. Stay warm, and although that doesn't really apply to you, Elwing in Florida, but no, <laughs> it's been wet, but not but not cold. Yeah, I'd still trade you. Yeah, <laughs> take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye.